What's happening, troops? Welcome back to another episode of A Little House in the Prairie podcast. This week we've got episode 11, and this one is a special one. Uh, this man needs no introduction. When it comes to dance music, he's done it all. An absolute legend in Canada. We're joined today by DJ Joe Silva, all the way from Winnipeg. How's it going, Joe? Hey, really good. Really good, man. How are you? Yeah, not too bad at all. I can't really complain. I mean, other than the shitty weather towards the end of this week, there's it's been pretty good. Things start to look like they're opening up, so I, I can't complain about anything. That's great. Yeah. We're not opening up anytime soon here. Right now, we're we're like the worst in North America, apparently. But uh, um, hopefully, it's going to get better soon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, the vaccine's being rolled out now. It's starting to look up. You're seeing other countries kind of take the plunge and open, yeah. the, open clubs and have events going on. So hopefully, if everybody keeps uh, sticking to the rules and uh, we manage to keep the numbers down, it'll start to progress and we'll see see some places opening up sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah. My friends in uh, San Francisco are telling me the clubs are packed. I'm like, no, nothing happening here. <laughs> it's times like this where you wish that you weren't here and you could go and just be on a dance floor in the booth and enjoy yeah. being around other people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Right, well, I just kind of want to jump right into this and uh, yeah. we'll kick things off here. Uh, just want to give you the floor and let you introduce yourself and can I talk a little bit about how you got involved in dance music and what it was like in the early days for you when you were just starting off your uh, your, your career in music? Sure, yeah. Um, like I got the dance music bug after hearing house music on, on a proper loud system. Uh, I was in Portugal and uh, most of Europe, they don't have sound decibel level restrictions like they do in Canada and the United States. So their sound systems there are like 20 or 30 to be louder and designed to be that loud. And they're overbuilt. And like, to me, it seems like the sound system was the focus of the club, you know, and that's, makes so much sense to me because it's all about that feeling that music and and the, when i did feel uh music in these clubs it was just like i got it and I, I just fell in love with that whole sound the vibe of it the the welcoming um people uh and mindedness and that all oh, that whole culture around it i just i just fell in love with it it felt like uh something that i f- could finally feel like i belonged to yeah, I think that was the case for a lot of people, especially yeah. like myself being from Europe and definitely going one of the, like I moved here when I was 17 and uh, when I really started, like I'd always been around dance music, but when I really started kind of falling in love with it and it was hooked, I was in a, a club in Glasgow called Sub Club and I spoke about this before and yeah. the, the sound system is like right beside the dance floor like when you're on the dance floor you can it's in big cages you can put your hand on the cages and feel the music like it's crazy and just being in these these clubs like you said that are built around the sound system it it Mm -hmm. just brings you closer to the music as well in terms of uh like that's what you're there to see it's not it's not like a lot of the clubs here where you're going out and it's just a social thing the social aspect is there, but you also are going out to see the great performers and artists that are playing in these places as well and the show that they Yeah, have. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, we're more distracted nowadays with, with our phones and, and cameras and being able to record things and Shazam things. And it's, it's a great thing, but at the same time, it's a double-edged uh, sword, so to speak, because uh, we, we're more distracted. We're not really as involved in what's, what's happening with all the people around us. Yeah, it's unfortunate, and you, you are seeing that in a lot of the bigger events that are going on, even in Europe right now. Is like you, there's a lot of people go there, and you look at the crowds, and all you see is the phone flashes and people that are <laughs> video. And, and I mean, I get it. Those moments are amazing, and you don't want to forget them, and you want to be able to keep a little bit of that memory alive in, the, in your phone. But at the same time, like you're there for the experience, and you can't experience it through your screen. You've got to be there and feel it, and have the energy in the room and that's what makes these events so special mm -hmm. um, and yeah well i guess that was uh when you kind of was in europe that would have been back in the 90s is that correct yeah it was um <clears throat> it was the early 90s and uh i had just finished university and i wanted to take uh, some time off and i have relatives in portugal so i i went to see them and also to kind of see um uh, Lisbon, um, kind of on my own uh, as like a grown up, because I had seen it only uh, with my parents uh, when I was a kid. So uh, uh, I had copies of my first uh, EP that I had ever done. Um, it was uh, it was kind of like a new order Depeche Mode kind of thing called Bite the Bullet, and I had a whole bunch of records with me. So I wanted to see the record stores in, in Lisbon. So I was going around and. Uh, I bumped into a DJ and, and he kind of asked me what I was doing. And uh, he said, he's playing at a club in a few minutes. And this was like in the afternoon on Friday, like two in the afternoon. So uh, do you want to come? I said, yeah, for sure. Let's go. And uh, so we went, he got, got me in and the club was um, right in the middle of the city. And it was just packed with high school kids and they're all uh, like skipping school Friday afternoon to go dance. But it was just like a totally proper club but used for uh, underage kids in during the day. But I mean, they're selling alcohol there. So it was, it's much more relaxed. Uh, I was already in my mid twenties uh, or early twenties. Uh, I can't really remember, but uh, I already felt old there, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we were drinking and he played my track on the system. And uh, it was like probably the first time I ever heard my music being played um, and get to actually see the reaction of people, you know, that's a really good feeling for an artist to, to, to be there. And uh, that first time that ever happens is really special. So it happened to me there. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's something that a lot of people chase and a lot of people who, uh, especially people who make music, who produce music, uh, chase. And this is like, they get hooked off of hearing their, the, the songs that they put in hours <laughs> to make and they've worked so hard on playing on these big sound systems and getting a good reaction and people enjoying it and seeing people dance to their music. I mean, I don't think yeah. there's many things in life that kind of compare to that in terms of the buzz that you get off of it. Like you get goosebumps and it, you feel like all those hours, uh, all, all hours of the night and days on end trying to make yeah. sure that that that, uh, that kick sounds perfect and this it's all paid off right like mm -hmm. yeah uh, 
so I guess being in that club and hearing your kind of your own music being played on the sound system and getting a feel for the scene out in Europe after that, I'm guessing you were just hooked. Yeah, yeah. When I came back to Winnipeg, um, I I sought out that music and uh, I found it in uh, a really long running LGB, uh, uh, LGBT uh, club called Happenings. And uh, the DJ there uh, is the guy who ended up teaching me how to DJ. Uh, I went, I started going there and they were playing all like the more of European kind of ravey music uh, that wasn't really being played anywhere else. And uh, it was a private club, but it would be open super late. So we would go and uh, everybody knew each other and the music was uh, the central thing. The system wasn't like massive, but the room was small. So it sounded good in there. And uh, it was, uh, um, again, uh, kind of um, minorities and, and uh, people who are kind of uh, marginalized anyway. So we're all, we all felt kind of like a, uh, a sisterhood, a brotherhood, you know, it was, it was a really good, good time. Yeah. And so able to experience that music here in, in Winnipeg by, yeah. by that club. That's what dance music's all about, really, as well. I mean, that's where it all stemmed from, and that's kind of what started it, was those minority groups, uh, people like the, the LGBTQ community and, uh, like, places in Detroit where people were, like, relatively poor and coming from more impoverished mm -hmm. neighbourhoods, and they didn't have the same opportunity to go to the more commercial clubs and get out to the bars, so they started throwing their own parties, and a lot of those parties back in the day were warehouse raves and it was, yeah, you just yeah. throw up a big sound system on there and you get some DJs to come in and play and it was inclusion. And if you want to come enjoy yourself, come enjoy yourself. No judgment. Just come. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was good. I was glad I was exposed to that. And that's uh I mean, I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about that as well. Um, from what I understand, at the time when you were learning to DJ and when you came back from Europe, uh, there was a lot of these kind of warehouse parties and stuff still about, and uh, yeah, especially in the 90s there. Um, and then, obviously, coming into the 2000s, the government passed legislation and uh, put a hold on essentially people being able to throw these parties because they were seen in a negative light and they were disapproved of and what was it kind of like uh and like in your experience that transition over from those warehouse parties when everything started becoming more commercialized and having to have actual venues put these shows on was it was that a struggle at the start did you see them kind of picked up right away and people recognizing that this was a good thing or was it like few and far between and something that's kind of built up over the years? No, I, I didn't see it as a negative thing. Um, I mean, I have a lot of great memories of, of going to warehouse parties in Winnipeg and in the exchange district, there was a couple of places um, that would go all night. And uh, the, the vibe there is kind of like, not really like a club. It's much more gritty and dark and uh, the lights aren't as uh, you know sophisticated but it's it's got that raw emotion to it you know and people are there and we kind of feel like we're kind of doing something we're not supposed to be doing you know because it's kind of 
hidden, it's secret, but you can hear it down the street. So it's not that secret. But, you know, I remember there'd be like um, the back of the building had a freight elevator and we'd all go up in the freight elevator. So the front of the building looked deserted, but you have to know that, oh, you got to go around to the back and there's a freight elevator. And then there's a guy there working it and he'll take, take you up in groups and, uh, and you get upstairs and then all of a sudden there's just like wall to wall people. Everyone's having a good time and people's brought, people have brought beer and people are doing drugs and the music is amazing. And uh, I mean, uh, there is some drug use, but I don't mean it to be uh, like blatant or overt, but you know, people are drinking and people are having a good time. So it wasn't getting out of hand and definitely the vibe was a very welcoming, warm vibe. Yeah, and that's even something that's still present to today is essentially everywhere you go and especially in Europe as well, there's, I mean, there is people who are drinking and doing drugs and other things, but you don't really see any trouble. It's not like people are getting aggressive with you or like causing problems or out just to yeah. get as high as they can and then go and start fights with people. Like it's generally... Even if you've never pet, met the person before in your life, they just want to be best friends with you and sit and tell you their life <laughs> story and talk to you and everything else. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I think it took a while for that narrative to shine through and the fact that, yeah, people just want to be left alone to do their own thing and they're not out there to cause any problems. But yeah. I think uh, over the years of the commercialization of it, it has, it has taken away a lot of those negative connotations from back then, even though there were, mm -hmm. it was just mis uh, misinf uh, misinformation. Sorry, I was struggling to get that word out. <laughs> yeah, it was. And I, I never saw any, any like serious overdoses or people being taken to hospital or anything. It was people, you know, being acting fairly responsibly and just having a place to, to go. Um, but later in the 2000s, there was uh, a club called uh, the Blue Agave. I played there. Uh, with a few other local DJs, uh, Winnipeg DJs. And, and that was a great club. It had three levels. The level I usually played at just had uh, tons of couches that, that they had bought. Like, and people would lounge on the couches. It was a very comfortable thing. And they were also great for the sound too, because they absorbed bass. Um, so I really liked playing in that, that second floor. But uh, that was the last time I really remember feeling that same kind of warehousey party vibe in a in a club and uh, eventually uh, uh the music changed that place closed and um in the 2010s and so on it was more uh commercial stuff there was a a few smaller clubs uh, and people throwing events you know nathan obviously and uh our friend jordan uh has a club right now uh footworks but uh like little places like that existed but the bigger clubs uh were playing more uh, the commercial stuff yeah, um, I think we're seeing a lot of that uh, come through circle again now. I mean, you're seeing a lot, a lot of the clubs that are doing really well uh, across Europe and even in North America here and even South America has really started picking up on it where they're bringing those big spaces, big sound systems, warehouses yeah. back. I mean, places like Printworks is obviously the is killing it right now and the, the people that they're booking, it's, it's like a who's who of dance music and it's just an abandoned. Where's that? Uh, Printworks in London. It's like a big, yeah, oh. 
it's like a big long warehouse so it's like pretty narrow but they have like two or three mm. floors to it and they can have balconies overlooking the kind of main dance floor and it, it's a really cool uh-huh. setup they've got and it's mm. again it's nothing over the top it's just the sound system and the stage and then the kind of warehouse vibes are all there right they didn't yeah. have too much work to it yeah. um even in South America, you're seeing a lot of those bigger clubs now coming back. So hopefully we see things uh, follow suit here in Canada and uh, we can start to see some of those, I guess, grittier venues making a comeback and uh, finding Yeah, them. who knows? Because I think for a lot of people, they, the nostalgia is something that's going to draw them back to that. Yeah, yeah. But again, for for where we are, especially... I know you're in Winnipeg and you guys are a bigger city than we are here and you have a bit more going on but because of where we are and we're so isolated to, in terms of like the next kind of bigger cities around us it's it's yeah. hard to find the people to fill those big spaces and to fill those big warehouses and unless people are managing to do it consistently and actually make a little bit of a reputation and like you said give people time to be in the know about it and to find out Mm-hmm. these things are going on I think uh, uh, we're kind of struggling because people are just wanting the turnaround straight away and they want the success to work right off the bat and it's just never going to be the case especially where we are yeah sometimes it's a, a really slow build to, to build a night um, but places like us cities like us we just have to have small venues that you can get a vibe in without too many people you know like uh, 20 people in a small room is it can be a good vibe yeah and I, and personally like for me i love those small clubs those small intimate clubs where you can like essentially reach out and touch the dj and everything yeah, right there. and if the sound system is a good sound system for the size of the the venue i mean you can't go wrong with that i mean it's a little bit hot and sweaty but that's kind of what you want you're not there for the glitz and the glamour you're just there to, yeah. to dance yeah. and dance yeah <laughs> yeah definitely uh i remember being in a club in in toronto i forget which one it was but i went there with a couple of friends from here and, and uh, it was literally raining sweat from the ceiling and the uh i'm like this, this must be the way it is every week but, but i never experienced that before but it's just like so many people and just all everyone's dancing and it's like the end of the night and it's just so so humid but it's like who cares man this is great the music's awesome I can't remember who was playing, but um, I know Pete and Tyrone was one of the, 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 the guys that were playing that night, um, like longtime Toronto DJs, but I can't remember who, uh, who the headliner was. It could have been like someone like Danny Tanaglia or Derek Carter or somebody like that we went to go see. But uh, yeah. Uh, the, those little clubs are the best and they're the ones that leave an imprint on you as well like even yeah I still remember that yeah yeah because even like I was saying when I was in sub club for the first time and it's like the big sound system and stuff as I said yeah. vibe, like on the dance floor the roof is like super low so you can literally like reach up and put your hands on the roof so oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of time when the DJs are like they're like building up to the drop and stuff, people slamming on the roof and you can hear it. It's super <laughs> cool. Like even though it only holds a few hundred people, you feel like you're in a big crowd and it's like super kind of intimate and the vibes are, are amazing and the yeah you put a good show on in there. I like I like that intimate vibe. 
Um, I was in Barcelona for Sonar a few years ago, and the Sonar at night room, well, not a room, I guess it was a big cavernous warehouse, and it felt like it was about like half a kilometer long or so. It was so huge. I think Kraftwerk were playing, and uh, I don't know, like for me, that just felt like you're in a sea of people, and uh, I just felt almost disconnected from from the stage and what was happening. You know, it could have just been a film, and uh, it would have been the same, I guess. But uh, the small rooms and the smaller, the, like the smaller spaces, to, for me, uh, I like that. It's more, I feel more more at home there. Yeah, and I think uh, those small spaces as well must be it must be nice to play in those too. Being like, if you're playing as a DJ, because a lot of a lot of what you're doing is reading a crowd while you're playing your music. You're reading the reaction. So when you're in those smaller rooms, it's easier to see the crowd reaction. Like they're right there. Yeah, you feel like you guys are on the same wavelength rather than sometimes when it's these big productions and you're up on the stage and there's big gap mm-hmm. security and everything. It's kind of it's harder yeah. to to get a, a proper judge. I mean, you still got to you can still do it, but. It's a little bit. It's a little bit harder to read just due to the the distance that's put in between you. Yeah, yeah. I like feeling like I'm part of the dance floor. In uh, in San Francisco, uh, I played for uh, the Red Melon parties a couple of times, and they would just set up cinder blocks right on the dance floor and put up put the turntables on there and the mixer. So you're literally right up, uh, right on the dance floor. People are dancing right in front of you, and so yeah, you get that personal reaction and, and you know people are right there and you can see their faces you know they're not trying to squint and you can tell whether they're digging the music or not you know right away yeah and i, th- I think uh someone who does a really good job of that right now is uh, boiler room because they have their setup yeah. where they although it is still separated off they do put up their railings to try and keep you from being right on top of the the uh, yeah. the players and stuff like it's very intimate in terms of you're right in the middle of the dance floor, the crowd's all around about you. It's not you standing in front of them and you you feel you feel like you're part of the dance floor. And in my opinion, from some of the shows that they've put on, I've I've been lucky enough to be part of a couple of them. And it's just it's it's really cool to be a part of because the artists who are performing really give it their all because they're they're hearing the they're hearing the crowd. They're talking to the people around about them. They're seeing the reactions, yeah. and they just want to keep keep pushing the limits to see how uh, how hyped they can get people and how energized they can get. Yeah, them. exactly. Yeah, because you're right there, and the, the feedback is instant. You mentioned there as well. You've you've played a lot in San Francisco. Uh, played a little. I'm guessing you've played a little bit in Europe. Um, no, I've, no, I actually, I don't, I've never played in Europe. I played in South America in the early two thousands. I did a little tour of South America, uh, Brazil, actually just Brazil, but I have played in Mexico a couple of times and, uh, the other place is Australia, but never in Europe. Hmm. Uh, oh, I've been there a few times. I've been to ADE, but I've never looked for gigs. I've never been offered a gig. So, uh, no. I guess that's in my on my bucket list. Yeah, you got to get yourself out there. And get <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it, it's not too hard. I'm sure uh, I could probably put you in contact with a few people that could point you in the right direction. But 
yeah, you got to get yourself out there and go and play some of those places because the crowds out there are, are wild. But um, yeah, even I guess Brazil as well. Brazil is. What is it like playing in front of those, like walking into something? I don't know if you've been to events in Brazil, is like just to watch shows just, before that, or it was just uh, I just played at some nights there. Uh, but the the people are really into the music, and they're very uh, loving, warm people too. Um, they made me feel at home. Uh, took me out. Um, I played six gigs there, and one of them was in a place called Campinas. And the promoter is warning me. He's like, oh, I don't know if anyone's going to come out. It's, it's 19 degrees Celsius. It's really cold. <laughs> Nobody wants to come out. It's so cold. 19 degrees Celsius. I'm like, what? <laughs> That's cold. Okay, well, I guess it's different perspective. But yeah, uh, it was still a good party. People did come out. Yeah, that's good. What was it yeah. like? What was it like walking into? I guess walking into a new culture because I mean, you've even even myself. I've I've experienced shows here in Canada and and a few different countries, and it's always a little bit kind of not unnerving, but like you're always a little bit cautious because every crowd in every area is a little bit different, and they're the music that they the music that they enjoy is always kind of fine-tuned to the areas they're from and yeah, right. where it came from, right? And did you find that hard to kind of adapt or were you... Yeah, it was. Uh, and uh, I didn't have a lot of experience as a DJ. You know, like uh, I had only been DJing less than five years. So it was, a, it was kind of a scary thing for me. But uh, um, the people there I found were really knowledgeable about the tracks like they knew a lot of the tracks that i was playing and uh, uh the stuff that they played was really top-notch too like all the, all the other djs that i saw there uh, i was really impressed when i when i played there i was playing all vinyl so i took all my sleeves uh i took all the jackets off and i just had the records in their sleeves so i could pack more records <laughs> so i had like tons of uh records with me but no no jackets so they were all kind of like all mixed up and they're all they're all white but i had i guess uh my my coatings on them that uh, i write on them and uh yeah it worked out it worked out fine i was able to take like 30 percent more records with me yeah and do you st- do you still play vinyl then to to this day is that your preference is playing on no vinyl? no my preference is uh record box cdj's uh, I use CDJs at home because uh, then I can go to a gig with a USB stick. And uh, like I've, I've done all my record carrying already uh, earlier in my, my life. And uh, I don't want to do any more. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I love showing up to a gig with a USB stick and uh, a pair of headphones. It's, uh, it's really uh, freeing, you know, cause you don't have to worry about your records all the time you know you can go out and put your music in your pocket and you're you're fine right whereas before is like you know that's your precious cargo you can't lose that or else uh you won't be able to do the next gig yeah i think uh i think that's kind of the consensus where where a lot of djs these days is they're just especially like guys who have been doing this for a long time and started off on vinyl from 
when I whenever I spoke to them, they're just like, I do not miss carrying vinyl about. Like you don't realise how heavy it is to carry boxes of vinyl until yeah. we've got to do it. Like it's fine picking up a record and you're like, oh, it's not that heavy, but when you've got 30, 40, 50 records, they, they get yeah. up there. They get yeah. up there. And uh, I think for a lot of people, it's just like you said, it's the convenience of having the USB on you and you can show up and plug your, plug your USB in and you're essentially ready to rock and roll and can just get yeah. right into it and you don't have to worry about it. And I guess the other thing that comes with that is another thing that when I speak to a lot of people who have been DJing for years, and they'll tell me a big part of DJing is being able to adapt when things kind of start going wrong or you run into glitches. And there's, mm-hmm. that's minimized as well with these digital players because you don't have yeah. you don't have as much, uh, I guess, like with your, with your record players and stuff, there's a lot more that can go wrong. And uh, it's you just... Knock your needles. Yeah. Knocking your needles, scratching records, uh, having... Yeah. I've I heard I spoke to one of my friends and he was playing in in a club and uh, the the kind of booth wasn't the most stable so when the bass was like kicking in it was yeah. rocking the the record player and everything yeah. kind of shaking and that was another thing that he he was like it was a nightmare honestly all night I was just stressed about it like I couldn't even enjoy playing the show because I was worrying so much about anything yeah. going wrong. Yeah, it does free you to to be more creative. Uh, that's what I really like about the CDJs. I, I can do more. Um, I can play around with the EQ. I can mess around with filters. I could do uh, reverses and loops and stuff. And I can't do that with vinyl. Um, I played a. I played a. When I played in uh, um, Australia. I was playing CDs at that time. So I'd gone from vinyl to CDs. I wasn't, it wasn't yet time. Uh, people weren't playing with laptops yet, but uh, they couldn't get a, a work permit. So I didn't want to advertise that I was going there and I didn't want to come with like a stack of big, a bunch of CDs. So I think what I had was a bunch of blank CDs and I had the music on my laptop. And so I was going to make the CDs once I got there, once I got through customs so I made all the CDs in the hotel room. Um, I'm going to the gig and, uh, hey, let's just try these CDs. I never used my laptop to make them before. So let's just try them in the car. Put, put a CD in. Nothing. Nothing. It's not working. Oh, well, let's try this one. Nothing. None of the CDs are working. I'm, I'm, terrible. Like, I'm going to the gig now. It's like, shit, I have no music now. What's going to happen? And the only thing we thought was, okay, maybe it's just the car. It's a little more picky. Maybe the CDJs are going to be fine. And so uh, we got there. The CDJs read my discs and I was like, oh, thank God. But every once in a while it would start to skip. So I had to like, you know, be totally on the ball all the time, making sure that is it actually going to play or is it going to skip or yeah, that totally um, stressed out my entire gig. uh, Yeah. That entire set was like very stressful, but yeah, stuff like that. How can you predict that? Right. Yeah. It's it's something that you just got to learn to deal with on the fly and uh, just be adaptable and realize that, nothing nothing's ever going to go all of your way all of the time you've got to be prepared for things that go wrong and just make make the mistakes and make the the kind of hiccups 
just blend into the night then people tend to notice that yeah if you keep going people don't really realize whereas sometimes if you stop and everything that's something that's got to stick in people's people's minds and i've seen something even with the cdjs as well i mean i was in a club and uh the dj who was playing all of a sudden like i don't know if many people picked up on it because a lot of people were drunk and maybe just like music and didn't really know how the things worked but uh, what had happened was one of the CDJs locked on his loop and he couldn't get it off. And it was just oh. playing the loop and he couldn't like get another track on there. And then he was trying so hard to get it fixed that the other CDJ turned off. So then he was <laughs> trying to get the other CDJ back loaded up again. And you know yourself, it's not just like you press a button and it's instantly on. Like it got loaded itself <laughs> up and get yeah. prepared and everything. But yeah, and I don't think a lot of people noticed because he dealt with it really well. And I guess the tech guys were on top of it like instantly, but it was something that I kind of remembered, but the way he dealt with it was like a lot of people, even my friends, when I spoke to them after, when we were in the taxi on the way home, I was like, did you notice that? And they're like, mate, no, I don't know no. until you pointed it out, but now you say it. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I was ready to start playing my friend's CDs, even though I didn't know what was on them. I was just like, well, I need some music, so I'll just play your, I'll just play your stuff. But I never, uh, it turned out I didn't have to. But yeah, that's happened to me before. Um, now I try to be prepared for it. If something happens like that, the music cuts out. Uh, turn up the echo and then just start playing with the button and pretend that you did, did it on purpose. And you're like doing some sort of like trick or something, yeah. you know? Clapping your hands. <laughs> and that's where a lot of the electronic stuff kind of comes in, is it bails you out in a lot of those situations. Because I guess back when it was when it was primarily vinyl people were playing, you couldn't do a lot of the, the tricks that people can do on, on the on the uh, the rec the the players now, like the, the MP3 players and stuff, the CDJs. It's it's given people a lot more creativity in terms of Back when it was vinyl, a lot of your time was spent making sure tracks were in time and yeah, in your vinyl and going through your crates and uh, that took up a lot of your time. Whereas now you can load a track in a few seconds, you can get it, uh, get it beat matched and everything, and you can start mm-hmm. more creative with it and uh, yeah, big build ups and things like that. So. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely something that's been good for DJing and uh, you're seeing a lot of people pushing the limits and what these things can do. And it's exciting to see what they're going to come out with next because even yeah. looking back, I've I played on I played on some CDJ 900s, uh, it would have been August last year. And I'd, I've played on the 2000s and the 2000 Nexus, but I had never played mm-hmm. on the 900s and playing on those I mean they're essentially the same thing they're very similar and there's not much but you do notice a lot of the things like that's got better and that's just in the last what six seven years when the thousands came out right yeah and apparently the new one now I think uh, 3000 yeah there's EDJ yeah I haven't I haven't seen it yet but um, I'm sure yeah uh, you know when you try to think about what it's going to be like 20 years from now uh you know, it's hard to imagine what kind of innovations there's going to be. But, um, you know, my guy friend is uh, into uh, using VR 
to uh, DJ, like doing DJing in VR space. He's doing, he's fooling around with that. I, I'm not really into that because um, I can't wear a VR helmet for too long. I start getting um, a headache or I, just, I don't like the way it hurts, it hurts my eyes after a while. But I think it's just because it's still new technology and it's still getting better and better, you know. Uh, but something like that could, could definitely take off. Who knows? In, yeah, in I think, 20 uh, years. You're seeing a lot of that being put into practice right now as well with the, the whole COVID situation. I've seen uh, a concept. I don't know who it was who put the event on, but essentially the concept of it was they had built a VR club so you could like be in your VR and on the dance floor and look mm-hmm. at it and everyone had their kind of characters there. Yeah. And, and then like the acts who were playing, like the artists who were up in the booth, was just it was like a live video feed of them so everyone else had like almost like a minecraft character or like they could design their character but then there's real people who are up in the booth behind the deck Mm. it was super cool actually that the idea um yeah i think there's still a long way to go in terms of the vr space and i mean yeah advancements over the last few years here so it'll be interesting to see where we are in the next 10 20 years with that Mm -hmm. But I know yeah. you you're a big tech guy as well. I know you're you like your tech. And uh when you kinda of first got started, what was it that drew you to that? Because I know obviously the music you had been playing with music and then when you went to uh Portugal there you that was kind of the big moment where you fell in love with it and mm-hmm. decided to to get more involved. But was it did you play piano when you were younger or was it just when you started learning more about synths and things like that, drum machines? Where, where did that come from? Yeah, that, uh, no, I started playing really young. I started playing uh, piano and uh, uh, accordion and uh, I didn't take too many lessons. I kind of uh, was one of those people that likes to learn by ear. So I would like sit at a piano and, and learn uh, songs I'd hear on the radio, you know, I'd kind of, figure out how to play them. And eventually I got better. Um, and then um, with my paper out money, I, I bought a used synthesizer <laughs> in like uh, basically what Kijiji is now, but it was a paper that come out once a week, the bargain hunter. And he was like, Oh, Roland SH 1000. And uh, I ended up bought it for like 200 bucks and it had a, one of the keys had a big cigarette burn on it. Cause I guess someone dropped their cigarette on it and just left it, but it was my first synth and, and I was playing around with it. And uh, I just fell in love with the whole idea of making electronic sounds and, um, you know, m- using them in music. Cause uh, there was just, it was just starting to be used in some songs on the radio. You could hear it, you know, like Emerson Lake and Palmer or Pink Floyd or Genesis, you know, they were all using synthesizers more and more. And it was like becoming, uh, uh, a new instrument in, in that type of music, even in rock. And so I loved uh, all that and going to Long and McQuaid music store and like playing with all the synths there. It was just like, man, if I had the money, I'd buy all of these, but you know, so it was like I, all the money I'd make, I'd spend on, on gear after that. I bought a, a Rhodes electric piano after that. And I played a, in a band I played in a, like a, uh, rock band that my friends and I formed and uh, so that gave me like the 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 feeling of what it's like to play in front of a, an audience you know in a band but uh, um, 
eventually uh, in the early 90s, I think, uh, mid-90s, I, I started making music under the name X Nation. And uh, that was kind of like more commercial dance music. We did, we did some shows. Um, I'd play with a DAT machine, which is a digital audio tape recorder. Uh, it would play backing tracks and then I'd have some synths with me and I'd play on top of that, you know, and then there was a vocalist singing. Uh, so we did a couple of shows like that. And, um, and then eventually I started uh, wanting to make my own records. So I started Pure Space Recordings in about 95 and I put out some, all the music I put out was under the name X Nation for a while. Uh, and then, uh, and then after that, I started uh, using my own name more, more into like 97, 98. Yeah. And I guess that is a deep rabbit hole to go down when you start looking at synths and you start looking at some of the prices of these synths that are going on. Like they get up there and some of the drum machines, I'm sure I saw on Kijiji recently that someone had listed uh, one of the original uh, Roland uh 909s oh yeah it was like a few uh, it was up there a few thousand dollars like it was seven eight thousand really? dollars and i'm like geez uh -huh. but i guess those things have become so iconic now in music and thanks to people like jeff mills who obviously was the master but um, yeah they've brought a lot of value to them and so Back then, when you were kind of setting up these, or when you were playing in this band and you were playing live synth and things, that was essentially the early days of what it was like to do live performance. And I think uh, yeah. right now you're seeing a lot of these very talented producers who are also DJs who are moving into that that space where they're doing a lot of live performance, and you're seeing people be really successful with it. I mean, I've saw I've saw a few the the people who do it and it's it's so fascinating to me because yeah. it's, it's a hard enough thing being in the booth and uh, picking the right song to play next and like just reading the crowd and everything but when you've got to do that and still remember that you're playing instruments and what comes next and building the parts of the song is, is crazy and uh, yeah. you've seen people get really good at it people like Fiat out of uh out of Germany, out of Berlin, they've they really seem to have made it their own, and they they've become super famous for it. And I think uh, a lot of the reason, again, going back to a lot of the roots of dance music, is they get together, and that's just what they do in their spare time. Whether they were going to mm -hmm. be playing on big stages or not, they get together with their friends, and they have their studio, and they just make music yeah. and yeah. have fun, and it's it's just all a good laugh for them. Well, I should mention also that um, I do music with uh, an, another producer named Ali Khan, uh, and uh, or Ali Khan, and uh, he, what we uh, we do more like uh, tech house and deep tech stuff under the name Tone Pushers, and we we do live shows too. Um, we, we bring out uh, like some synths and drum machines and. Uh, play some of our music uh, live we we actually played in mutech in 2012 i think 2012 that was uh um that's a festival in montreal i don't know if you've heard of it but it's, uh, it's thank montreal, paris and it's in argentina i think too okay i, I think so i think i think they're worldwide now but we played in montreal 
and uh, that was super fun. Uh, that's that's super cool, and I mean, it's like I said, it's just fascinating to me. Like the, it's one thing hearing these songs, but actually watching and or I guess more so listening to someone build it in front of you, and you can hear all the parts that come, and it, yeah, it's, it's super cool, and. I'm guessing that doesn't that that doesn't come without its fair share of headaches too, in terms of stress and things could go wrong. Much more stressful, yeah. So many things can go wrong, and then you're uh, again traveling with a bunch of expensive equipment, and uh, you want things to sync, and uh, you want you know you want it to sound good, and yeah, um, we don't do it as much now, and obviously because of COVID, everything's on pause, but. Uh, uh, it's definitely a, a thrill when it works and, and it sounds good and people are into it. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned uh, before there, just when we were talking about uh, you getting into your synths and, th- synths and things, mm-hmm. uh, back in the 90s, you started your own your own label with Pure, uh, Pure Space Recordings and yeah. it's still going strong today. And you've put out some unbelievable tracks, EPs and things. Oh, thanks. Uh, on that label just even yourself and uh, some of your tone pusher stuff and uh, I think you've had a few other aliases you've put music out under if I'm not wrong like what's, yeah. it, what's it been like and I guess in terms of seeing something that you just started way back in the day when it, you probably mm-hmm. had no ambition for it to ever really be anything huge to now grow and evolve and still be still be here and still be present i guess what 20 yeah. 20 odd years later right it is almost yeah 95 till now uh, although i did take a long almost a, a decade hiatus uh but it's it's a great thing to be able to have a, a label because uh, it's a freeing thing for an artist to just be able to put out their music without having to present it to another label and kind of, you know, that vulnerability as well. And also maybe, maybe they're not going to get it or even not respond to you. And because it's so saturated now with uh, so many more amazing artists, you're competing with all of these artists for, for attention from, from labels. So um, uh, I feel lucky that I, I've got pure space that I can use as um, um a vehicle to get my get my music out as long as the distributor keeps putting uh, putting it out then uh, i'm good to go yeah good on you you're quite right and uh it's it, it gives you again a lot of creative freedom as well as to where you have you have a lot more of an idea of what direction you want to go with your music and what sound you want to create it gives you the freedom to really experiment and put out music that you like rather than going to label to label tr- present them with your tracks and like you said a lot of the time not even getting responses or just getting kind of uh swept to the side and it's like yeah yeah so you kind of or the harsh criticism in terms of yeah it's just not what we're looking for like yeah mm-hmm. that might not be what you're looking for but a lot of people are a lot of people like it and if you have the the ability to put that out on your own and uh, to kind of believe in yourself and just put it out there. I mean, you don't really have anything to lose, right? Yeah. And one of the, one of the advantages of that too, is you can, you can see what people are buying and what they are streaming 
and what they're not streaming. So you get that honest feedback. You know, there's, there's nothing more honest than seeing whether a track is doing well or whether people are listening to it or not. And sometimes it's not always possible to get that from from the various labels if you're putting out stuff on other labels, at least not in a consistent way that you can um, understand and, and use that to retool or re refocus uh, your your sound to something that maybe more uh, people will be into. So uh, yeah, I like being able to go every day and, and see what sold last night or yesterday and or you know what people are streaming and yeah, it's pretty cool. And and it's not hard for other artists that are out there who want to do that. Uh, Distro Kid is a, a distributor that uh, Ali's on, and, and he, he really likes it. Um, it's a, a different model than the one that I'm on. Mine is uh, LabelWorks. But um, if you've got, uh, you know, a, a few releases under your belt and, and you want to start getting them on Beatport and track source and iTunes and all of these distro kid is a, is a way to get in that might be a little bit easier than some of the more larger distributors that, you know, they might want more established artists. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit harder sometimes, but distro kid seems to be good for like the, the little guy. Yeah. So um, encourage um, artists to do that. I've, I mean, on the third, the third episode of this podcast, I had uh, a few of my friends on, for, or my friend from Scotland on with me, and they've, right. just, they've just recently started their label. They've been doing a lot of things over in the UK, very similar to the Circle uh, videos that have been going out with the mixes and the iconic locations. They've been doing a similar thing uh, mm. in places in Scotland and just recently launched the label. And uh, some of these distributors and uh, platforms, they've had quite a lot of success on. I mean, they just put out a, a new uh, a new release the other day and it's doing really well on the Beatport charts and uh, oh, yeah. they've been Great. pretty successful with it. So, I mean, with all these different platforms, places like Beatport, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, mm -hmm. there's so much uh, availability to put music out these days that you're really seeing some fantastic artists starting to come through and get the recognition that they maybe wouldn't have got uh, back when it was a little bit harder when you were putting out vinyl and you had to go, like you said, when you're in Portugal, going shop to shop, trying to see if somebody yeah. will sell your, your vinyl and things like that. Um, yeah. And that's another thing that I guess has evolved over the years. And do you still put out vinyl records or is it all prim primarily uh, digital based now on, on these Platform. I'll do it now. I thought about doing some vinyl, but um, I, uh, right now uh, I'm I'm not gonna do anything. But uh, I'm not saying never. But right now, digital. Yeah. It's just more streamlined. Um, there's a less financial outlay, and um, I'm not really hooked up with who's printing vinyl right now. So I'd have to, I'd have to kind of dig into it and figure out. Like when I was doing vinyl, I was getting print. It was getting made in Toronto. And, but most of the stuff was being sold in the UK. So I had a distributor in the UK. So I'd have to ship the records from here and records are heavy. So uh, a lot of the money would be shipping, you know, like uh, a lot of the, uh, out, the original, uh, like the overhead would be just like shipping costs, shipping vinyl to the UK. And then uh, whatever doesn't sell, they ship back to you. So I, I think that was on my dime too. I'm not sure, but maybe not. Anyway. It's discouraging when you receive records back, but um, yeah, 
that's so, something uh, that I've kind of heard as well. And I mean, a, a few of my friends, uh, a few of my friends in the UK and stuff, have been uh, relatively successful and managed to have different labels sign some of their their tracks and uh, EPs and things like that. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm somebody who, again, I, I say this every time I bring this up. Mm-hmm. I'm still learning to DJ. I'm still developing, and I'm still pretty early but a lot of the stuff I'm playing is uh, on digital yeah I do like I do like the I like the physicality of having vinyl and I have started collecting vinyl and I eventually like like to give it a go and get my feet wet and kind of yeah. dabble in it and kind of learn learn the ins and outs but for me yeah. there's something there's something very satisfying about having vinyl in your hands and a lot of these guys who have put out releases, I'm like, is there any chance you're going to be printing vinyl? And every single one tells me the same thing. It's like, it's just not worth it. It's too expensive. It's it's hard yeah. to distribute it. It's it's hard to find people who are going to print it. And it's it's a, it's a niche. I mean, there's not yeah not as many people who are buying vinyl now because everything's so accessible. That why would they go dig through crates at a record store when they can just go online and go to Beatport and just go through the the lists and yeah but there's something about the idea of making something that only 300 people will in the entire world will have and uh, and some artists really like that that appeal appeals to them and it does to me in some way but i think also um i mean it has to be a really good track for you know it has to be something uh special in that way that people are going to want and they might want to covet it, you know, and so having only 300 or 500 copies out there uh, allows DJs to um, have something uh, a little bit unique in their set, you know? So uh, there's that. That, That's a a pro for, for vinyl. Yeah. One of the, I guess one of the artists that stands out that does that is a skateboard out of Norway uh, oh, yeah. I, know, I know all of his releases on his hard wax label is all uh, it's all numbered, so I think they're limited to like five hundred each copy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you've even seen uh, Darius Cyrosian uh, with the Moxie Music label over in England as well. Over lockdown, he had he had some releases that were like uh, limited releases, and they're they're like uh, blank prints essentially. And it's oh like yeah, the edits and. Yeah, all all his all the money he made off of that, and I think he was they sold out pretty quick. All the money he made mm-hmm. off of it, he was donating to the the health service and uh, showing support that way and donating to charity. So nice, and something like that is for great causes, and it's very memorable, and it's nice to have something physically in your hands. But I guess yeah. it's just the convenience of the convenience as a producer to be able to just distribute it without having to go through all that added stress and. Uh, it makes a process makes a process a lot faster in terms of actually distributing your tracks and uh, getting them to the people who are listening to them, uh, which frees up a lot more time for you to get your repetitions in as well. Because it's like anything in life, right? The more you're doing something, you you kind of figure things out on your way, and you get better and better the more you do it. So yeah, definitely. I think it's definitely been an aid that everything's moved more digital these days, but 
again, it's, it's still mm. nice to, to go back to the vinyl. So hopefully we still see some pure space recording vinyls sometime in the future. Uh, maybe. Or maybe or maybe a new format. Who knows? Like maybe something like vinyl, but I don't know, cheaper or, or more environmentally friendly somehow, you know, that you can print out on uh, a 3D printer and uh, get it delivered that way. <laughs> I don't know. Something like that would be cool. You might be on to something here. I, I'm, I, we might have to speak to some people about getting that idea. <laughs> here, Joe. No, yeah. I, think you're, I think you're spot on there. But yeah, I think uh, we are starting to see things go more digital. And you're even seeing uh, a lot of DJs and artists putting out things like NFTs now, which, I mean, the concept is very cool. But I yeah. think it's, people are... There's so many people who are just jumping on the bandwagon who don't actually understand what it is that they're like what an NFT is supposed to be or what it is, and it's it's just oh, a, like a track. You mean like putting out a track as a, a non fungible token? Yeah. So there's been some. Tra- I've seen some that are like tracks, and I've also seen some that are almost like. Uh, so it's like you when you buy the track, you get the non-fungible token along with it, and it's like something that only you have that like marks that you bought the track when it was released. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, Kink done one, and it was like, uh, oh yeah, and it was like uh, he done diff- he done a few different ones, I think, and there were like different synths and like pieces of uh, pieces of gear that he uses in his live sets, and oh. but and those ones are pretty cool. But I also saw. Uh, there's one duck sauce has just put one out too. And theirs is just wild. Like, I don't really understand what it's supposed to be, but hey, each to their own. If people are buying them, then good on them. Yeah, I'm not really, I can't wrap my head around it. I haven't really looked into that too much. I understand it for art, like the visual arts, but it's harder for me to, to see how you can put value on it as, as audio as much, you know, but... Yeah, I think uh, I think the way people are going is they're trying to pair up the audio with the video and and make it something that's like uh, it's very limited, so that in in time, I, I mean, the whole goal behind it is when people move to a more digital space, that's going to essentially like art, like people collect art, or I guess mm-hmm. you know, to a certain degree, people collect vinyl that are uh, that nobody else has, or limited presses and whatever it is and they can be worth value i think that's the idea behind it and i know there's a few guys uh out of paris they're like kind of french house artists who mm-hmm. uh cyrus hood and mandamour and they've been doing their their concept is really cool actually so they were putting out like uh it was like mood edits so they had it was like an ep Mm-hmm. and they were only available for I think it was a month at a time so it was like you had a, mo- a one month window where you could buy the tracks and then after that they were gone you couldn't get oh. of them anymore so, yeah. and but it wasn't even in the, the NFT space that they were trying to do that the reason they were trying to do that was I read a statement like they were kind of talking getting interviewed or whatever and they were talking about why they'd done it and the reason why they were doing it was to try and limit or try and limit a lot of the kind of bandwagoning that goes on where once a DJ is playing a track over and over and over again and it starts getting big then everybody jumps on it so they make it so that 
like only the people who are in the know and on the ball and who actually are digging through music and uh, who are just going to buy it, whether it's like just because it's a good track, not because it's yeah. a good track, right? So, um, yes. Again, the the exclusivity factor was the kind of driving force behind that one. Yeah, I like that. That's a cool idea. But there's nothing stopping someone from making a copy. You just kind of have that agreement with those DJs that bought it that they're not going to be selling it or giving it away to all their friends. Yeah. And Maybe one or two. That's, uh, that's something as well that's kind of developed, I guess, back in the 90s when you were when you were starting off and getting involved in the scene I've heard a lot of stories about DJs ripping labels off records they wouldn't tell you where it was covering the records up now yeah. you go and ask someone hey what's that track nine times out of ten they're just going to tell you what track it was that they were playing which is yeah easy. I never did that I never did that but uh, I'll tell you a story uh, when uh, Richie Houghton was playing here at uh, a rave um one of the things he always did back in the day was uh he, he'd arrive there he'd look at the setup the mixer the turntables he'd take a flashlight and he'd follow all the wires and he'd make sure there's no hidden recorders anywhere because there was a big problem with like bootleg tapes coming out after the shows you know like people would have a recording and uh one of the things I did, because I had that DAT machine that I used to use for X Nation, it was like, I'd talk to the promoters, let me bring my DAT, okay, we can record the sets. No, no, we'll ask their permission. Oh, I always ask permission, but, uh, and a lot of times uh, the DJs would say yes. And uh, then we'd have this like awesome recording that no one else had. And we would like, you know, I would listen to it and take it apart and learn like, how did they do that? Or what tracks are they playing? That kind of stuff. You know, for me, it was a, it was a, a great way to uh, take apart a, a person's set and figure it, figure it out as I was learning to, to DJ myself. But um, the other thing also is just like within our exclusive uh, group of friends, I'd make CDs, burn CDs. And here's that set from last night or last week, here's Mark Farina, you know, and, uh, and it would be great because we'd have this awesome music to listen to recorded digitally too. So it was not just a cassette, but a, a, a DAP tape. Yeah. And I mean, you were lucky to uh, be around some of those, those artists that were playing the Canadian artists like uh, Derek Carter, Mark Farina, uh, Richie Houghton, people like that. When I guess now they're not playing as often, you're, they're kind of picking and choosing their shows, but yeah. they were really at the height of what it was that they were doing. And to be a part of that must've been phenomenal to see some of the, see and hear some of those sets live. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To, to uh, kind of see them in uh, their early twenties, just starting out like uh, Richie was, was pretty young when, when he was already like, you know, blowing up. But uh, uh, yeah, the, uh, and the other thing was uh, I had, a I had, around like my group of friends, I was one of the first ones with a CD burner. It was like a thousand bucks for a CD burner back then. But all, all my DJ friends wanted to make mix CDs so that they can sell them at stores. And, uh, and I would be like the guy who'd burn, burn like 20 or 30 copies of some guy's mix and they, okay, now I got to do another one. I'd be like burning CDs all the time. And it was helping me to <laughs> pay back a thousand bucks that I had to fork out for this thing. But yeah, that's how it was back then. Uh, it wasn't so easy to, to hear a set uh, like we can go on to SoundCloud now or uh, onto YouTube and, and watch 
uh, you know, a world-class DJ play, uh, it was much, much harder to, to gain that knowledge. You have to either be there or know someone, get a, get a recording. And uh, yeah, recordings were a big deal. Uh, I remember hounding people who, who I let someone else make the recording and then they're like, yeah, I'll give you a copy. And then they're like, where's that copy? <laughs> did, you, did you make it yet? And I'd be like, come on, can you send me that copy, that Farina set? And, uh, you know, it would be like, uh, it would be an exclusive thing. You'd really want to get it. You know, but now they're everywhere. Yeah, now just about every set that's played is very, is uh, recorded, I guess, because a lot of people like to post them on their uh, their mix cloud, their sound cloud. They like to yeah. them, share them on YouTube. A lot of them are filmed or like video so that they can stream them or whatever it's going to be. And uh, I was actually lucky enough to be a part of a very interesting experiment where this kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier with everyone in the crowd being on their phones. So last uh, 2019, I was in Scotland for four months and uh, me and my friend, uh, there was an event called Fly Open Air. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. They hold it in Edinburgh. No, I haven't. They hold it in Edinburgh. It's at uh, Hopeton House. So there's like the big bridge in the kind of background. It's like this big massive manor in the big courtyard. It's very cool. And, uh, so we went to we went there and boiler room had a stage. So the boiler room stage was like round the back of the house. Mm. And uh, when you went when you went round the side, they had like a kind of security like checkpoint. And when you were going into the stage, they had these little it was like a little bag with uh, you know like when you go into the store, they have like the security tags on the clothes. And yeah, it was, it was like one of those that closed the bag. So you had to put your phone in the bag, and then they closed it up, and you couldn't get your phone out of it. So there was no one on their phone. There was no one recording these sets except for the boiler room team. And they eventually, they did post them up. Uh, they're all on YouTube and stuff now. There's a there's a really iconic, famous one that you pr- probably saw the clip floating around Instagram at some point of uh, Follimer playing uh, Gimme, Gimme, Gimme by ABBA. And like everyone... No, I haven't seen that. If you search it up on YouTube, it was it's it's very crazy. It's very cool, and yeah, like everyone's singing along, and there's people on like people's shoulders, and everyone's dancing. There's not a phone in sight, and it's just those moments, kind of. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Before they posted, it kind of took you back to those days where, unless you were there, you didn't know what was going on, and uh, yeah, I think so. You a- were there. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be there. I didn't see the Follower one because that was on a Saturday. And actually, uh, the only reason uh, the only reason I had the opportunity to go to that festival, it was a weekend festival, so uh, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, someone who I went to school with uh, knew one of the organisers, one of the kind of main organisers of it, and Nina Kravitz was playing. And mm-hmm. like Nina Kravitz is like I love Nina Kravitz. Yeah. I've been dying to see her play for years. So I just shot shot my friend a message and I was like, hey, uh, you didn't tell me Nina Kravitz was playing, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the tickets have sold out. And she messaged me back and she was like, let me see what I can do. And uh, I flew into Scotland and the day I landed, I, I landed and turned my phone off of airplane mode in the, ho- or in the airport. And I had a, a text from her and she's like, check your email. Check my email and I two free tickets for the Sunday only because that was the day Nina Kravitz was playing. Um, nice. So yeah, no, that was, that was a really cool festival. We got to see a lot of, a lot of talented artists. We saw, uh, 
like Melody played and we saw uh, Sven Vath and mm. Kravitz uh, both played in Peggy Goo, but I don't think I was at the Peggy Goo set. But yeah, no, that was a, that was a really cool experience for me and being a part of that crowd with no recording, no phones, no nothing. And it was, it was very high energy. Yeah. And so your hands are free to, to do whatever. You're not worrying about dropping your phone or whatever. Who's texting you? Yeah. That's, it's freeing. I think that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a good thing and bad thing in a Scottish crowd because it was a boiler room crowd as well. You were right up close and intimate with the DJs and, uh, people on shoulders and shaking the canopy and you're like, Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that was, I guess back in, so do you like have any of those recordings then still kicking about anywhere? Or um, Yeah, I have, I have some of them. I do have some of them and uh, I have a whole bunch of dats, but I don't have a machine. My friend Ali just got a dat machine. So I'm going to go through them and see what's on them. Some of them might be sets, but uh, yeah, I still uh, pop them in once in a while. Uh, I have some converted to MP3s on my computer, but uh, um, finding the time to go back and listen to them. Usually I go back just to look for samples for tracks that I'm working on, go back to old nineties stuff and lift up a, a kick or a snare or something, or like a, a, an unrecognizable little vocal snip that I'm not going to get sued for if I yeah. use because <laughs> it's too, too small. But yeah, they're around somewhere. Yeah, well, we've got to, got to get them dug out and go through them because there's probably some hidden gems in there and some, some really cool stuff hidden that's maybe just been lost in time now that you don't have a player to play them, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Yeah, so I think we're coming up on the hour here, Joe. I don't want to, I don't want to go because I'm having such a great conversation with you here. But oh, uh, me too. Yeah, me too. The time is the time is coming near. Unfortunately, I'm sure we'll we'll have the opportunity to sit down and do this again sometime soon in the future. And that'd be great. Yeah. Hopefully, next time if all goes to plan, I'll be having people in person. I'll get to either come out to Winnipeg or hopefully we'll have you here in Regina at some point and we can actually sit down and actually talk face to face and uh, have a catch up on everything that you're going to be doing, especially when things get open and uh, we can get back to playing shows and things like that. Oh, I'd love to come up, up there and play a show. I've never played in Regina. I've been there, but I've never played. So, yeah, it's, unfortunately, the, the shows here are they're they're kind of hard to come they're hard to come by there's not a lot of uh there's not a lot of opportunity for dance music here and that's kind of a lot of the reason why oh, i yeah. to do this podcast was just to shine a little bit of light on it provide the platform let people like yourself who have been doing this for a long time educate people show a little bit of your personality tell your story and uh, hopefully bring some great music to Regina and also the Prairies in general. I, I've, I spoke to Nathan on the first episode, obviously, and I know he does a lot of stuff out in Winnipeg there, and I'd love mm-hmm. to go out and see you guys play. I know you're part, you've been part of the, the meme tech and things like that. So hopefully when things start going on and you guys are putting your, your uh, exhibitions on and things like that, I'll get to come out there and, because you guys like to play your crazy venues out there, right? You just get creative with the venues too. 
Yeah, yeah, you definitely should come out. It's a good time. It's it's a good party. Yeah, and uh, it's in Canada, and it's not that far away, so it's pretty cheap. You can even drive. You know? Yeah, I've been out to Winnipeg a few times, but I think the last time I was out there. Uh, I had my friend over, like my friend Stephen, who runs Close Contact over in the UK. He was out here doing his uh, qualifications for to be a ski instructor. And oh. we, took him, we took him to the, the Winnipeg Jets game. So mm. by the by the time we left the arena, I don't, I think the night was over. We were, we were a little bit uh, intoxicated, <laughs> you say. But yeah. uh, no, I'd love to come out there. And it's like you said, it's not too far away. So I'm sure when yeah. things open up, I'll be looking to get around and finally come and meet you guys in person and see some of the amazing shows that you've put on. But uh, yeah, just before we go, if you want to let everyone know exactly where they can find you, uh, where they can find the music that you're putting out on Pure Space and things like that. Yeah, um, well, the music, um, whatever your favorite store is, if you just search for Joe Silva, you'll see what's out there. Um, as far as my social media stuff, the easiest way is to go to joesilva.com because that takes you to my SoundCloud page and on there, I have links to my Mixcloud, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not very active socially, um, but I try. And uh, I have a Twitch channel too, so I did the mix for you on Twitch. Uh, I'll it ended up being two hours, but I'm going to cut it down to uh, one hour, and I'll send you that audio for for your SoundCloud. Perfect. Well, by this time, by this time that will already be up on the SoundCloud, and I'm sure people will be loving it and have been right. enjoying it all weekend. But uh, yeah, no, if you haven't already, go and check out Joe's mix on the SoundCloud. Uh, you know where to find him. I will be putting all of his links down in this, the description as well. So if you're interested, go and check him out and see all the amazing stuff he's doing because the music that he makes and the Twitch streams and the shows that he puts on is fantastic. And he's been doing this a long time and he's really, really knows what he's doing when it comes to this kind of stuff. But, uh, thank you very much, Joe, for joining me, honestly, like just give me the opportunity to sit down and talk to you. It's been phenomenal. And I feel like this hour hasn't been long enough for us to even barely scratch the surface. So yeah, there's so much, but, uh, it was great talking to you, Charles, and, and thank you for doing this. This is uh, a really cool thing you're doing. Anytime, mate. Anytime. It's a pleasure having you on here, and uh, I'm sure we'll cover everything else in time. We just uh, we'll need to keep doing this uh, down the line. Hopefully, by the time I speak to you next, everything will be open. We'll be seeing all the different crazy things that you're working on and what's yeah, going to be next awesome. for you. And, uh you guys over in Winnipeg, stay safe and hopefully you get get let off the leash soon and can throw some awesome parties. Thanks. Thank you. You too. Once again, thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of A Little House in the Prairie podcast. If you haven't already, check out Joe's Mix. It's live on our SoundCloud now, along with every other mix we've had up until this point. Uh, you can also find all of the other podcasts right here on this channel. Uh, check them out on YouTube, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're subscribing to the channel because that's the biggest thing that can help us right now is just growing the subscriber count. Um, 
Also, massive shout out to Pale Studios for the continued support over the last 11 weeks. Those guys have been fantastic and they have done so much for this podcast. All of their links will be down in the description, so make sure to go and check those guys out. And also, massive shout out to Kamikaze Designs. They're another streetwear brand based here in Regina and we're hoping to bring you a lot more of the stuff that they've been putting together, showcasing some of their designs on this show in the coming weeks. Um, With that being said, we do have a lot of good guests lined up, so make sure that you're coming back here every week and seeing what we're doing because we're really working hard on this and we're hoping to bring you some of the best in Canadian dance music and dance music across the world. So thank you all for your continued support and I'll see you again next week.